This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. How about we pray before we have a look at that? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the things that we've been able to enjoy, especially one another's company and the fellowship we have with one another in Jesus. We thank you for the chance we've had to look at, think about, discuss and reflect on uh, the scriptures, and uh, we pray that you'd uh, continue to use your word to uh, renew our minds and transform our lives, and we pray again for uh, that same uh, miraculous work of you in us uh, tonight in relation to Colossians chapter 3. I help those of us who are, uh, are tired and distracted to be able to switch off to those things and switch on to um, your word. Uh, to be attentive, and uh, Father, we pray that you might deepen our knowledge and understanding of Jesus, of your word about him, not just so that we can uh, have heads full of knowledge, but uh, lives full of the fruit that comes from it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a company that claims it's uh, developing technology to uh, bring people back from the dead. It's another cryonics company, but in this case it's using cryonics to freeze only the brain. Uh, This company, Humai, says that before the person dies, the company will use its yet-to-be-developed apps for years to collect extensive data on the person's conversational style and behaviour. And all that stuff would be stored uh, somehow. Then the person's brain would be frozen using cryonics technology. Um, And once the company's apps are developed uh, sufficiently, the person's brain will then be taken out of the fridge, defrosted and loaded with a chip that carries all the data that they'd stored in uh, the years uh, they'd collected it from. Um, And then the brain would be placed in an artificial body and the data on the trip will be used to control the body's functions. The website claims with all of this that it wants to bring bring you back to life after you die. However, the exact details of how the company intends to uh, bring people back to life are still unclear. Strikes me when I uh, hear things like this that you know people could save a, a lot of research time and funding if they just read the Bible. <laughs> but what the scientists at that company are talking about is a resurrected life of sorts, I guess, if they could ever pull it off, but it's a resurrected life in which the person just resumes their old lifestyle. Because it's all of those patterns from their old life that are just being used to reanimate this uh, new artificial body. But what we have with the resurrection of Jesus is a call to a new lifestyle. So this is what we want to look at in our time together tonight. The resurrection of Jesus is the call to a new lifestyle. 
And our focal point is Colossians chapter 3. And Colossians chapter 3 tells us that the call to a new lifestyle arises from the fact that we are living the resurrection life already. So this is the first point, that we are raised already. Now this might seem a little bit at odds with so much of what we've seen so far that emphasises the fact that Jesus has been raised as the first fruits of a resurrection of the dead that is still yet to come. Yet, if you look again at Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, it says quite clearly, if then you have been raised with Christ, not if then you will be, but if then you have been raised with Christ. Colossians 3 is saying that somehow we who trust in Jesus have been raised already. Now something that Paul talked to the Colossians about in a little bit more detail back in chapter 2. And if you can quickly cast your eyes back to chapter 2 in the middle to verse 13. you'll see that he says to them, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. God made alive together with him. And in fact, in verse 12, at the end of it, it speaks of, uh, You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. Now there's a couple of things that we learn from these verses. Firstly, we learn that apart from Christ, we were dead. Now I don't know about you, but I can remember back to when I wasn't a Christian and I can tell you I felt very much alive. But in verse 13... God is saying that regardless of what I felt, I was in fact dead. Dead in my trespasses or my sins. And what I think this means is that because I was a sinful person, living as though God didn't matter, disregarding him and his desires for me, and in disregarding him, disobeying him, and in effect dismissing him as being of no relevance to my life, because I was living like that, I was provoking God's wrath and anger against me. And of course, you know, any sort of fight against God is a fight that you're not going to win. So it was inevitable that God would one day hit me with the full force of his anger at my dismissal of him he would hit me with the fullness of the penalty for sin. He would one day let me experience the full horrors of death as his enemy. And because God is God, and if you take him on, you cannot win, this death was so inevitable for me that I was as good as dead. I was like a, a prisoner sentenced to, to die and awaiting my execution. 
And like someone on death row, I might have felt alive, but in reality, I was like a dead man walking. But the wonderful and amazing truth is that when God enabled us to believe in Jesus, he made us alive together with him, with Christ. Or as the end of verse 12 says, we were raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God. And if we were not just raised like Christ, but we were raised with Christ, then we were raised with the same resurrection life that Christ has. Raised already. And what made this resurrection life possible was that God had removed the death penalty our sins deserve. As uh, the end of verse 17 says, uh, verse 13 says, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven all our sins. How? He goes on, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God was able to cancel our debt because Jesus paid that debt when he died on the cross in our place for our sins. A minister friend of mine once tried to show this to uh, a Sydney radio personality by paying her bridge toll. Uh, Some years ago in Sydney, you used to have to pay a toll to cross the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And uh, it was back in the days before swipe cards and tap and go and all that sort of stuff. So you used to actually have to stop and hand over coins to the toll collector which meant that the traffic would slow right down and bank up and in your rear vision mirror you could very clearly see who was uh, sitting in the car behind you. And one day my friend Simon was waiting to pay his toll and he noticed in his rear vision mirror that the person behind him was a woman called Libby Gore who at the time was a very well-known radio and TV personality. So when it came his turn to pay the toll, Simon gave the toll collector double the amount and said, that's for me and the person behind me. Then he went home, wrote a letter to Libby Gore at her TV station address saying that he'd sacrificed a few bucks to pay her toll that morning as a way of trying to demonstrate to her the way in which Jesus had sacrificed his life to pay her debt against God because of her sin. Now, I don't know how Libby Gore responded to Simon's uh, gesture. I haven't heard anything, so I suspect she didn't respond at all that he he knows of. But I do know, I do know, that when Jesus paid our debt, it meant that if we believe in him, our sins have been forgiven. 
We are no longer under the penalty of death. And so in this way, we who have faith in Jesus have been made alive and raised with Christ to share the resurrection life that he does. If you believe in Jesus, your sins have been forgiven, you have been made alive, you have been raised already. And does this mean that the resurrection of the dead has somehow already happened? Or that when it does, there's not going to be anything much uh, left in it for us to get excited about? You know, like when you convinced your parents to uh, give you your Christmas present early. Uh, One of my kids did that recently. You know, it was uh, middle of the hockey season in winter. Desperate to have a new hockey stick. No, 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 no. What about if it's my Christmas present? Yeah, but Christmas is six months away. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. I've got to have it, got to have it. Yeah, but on Christmas Day, you're not going to get anything because the hockey stick's the, you know, the value of all your presents. You might get a chocolate. I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Got to have hockey sticks. Oh, okay. So, got his Christmas present six months early. Christmas Day, biggest anticlimax of his life. <laughs> Well, it's not going to be like that for us and the resurrection. Because as as well as um, having been raised to new life, these verses tell us, uh, back in chapter 3, that our new lives are also somehow hidden with Jesus, where Jesus is, and that the full glory of that life will only be revealed when he appears at his second coming. Have a look in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, it doesn't spell out the detail, but it's certainly not saying to us, guys, you know, you're raised already, there's nothing to look forward to now. It's saying there's a heap of glory still to come. Look forward to it. So we see again there this uh, now-not-yet tension that we often see uh, in the New Testament in terms of the blessings of being God's people. Some of them we have now, others not yet. So while we must say that there is much glory of our risen life yet to come at the return of Jesus, Colossians chapter 3 is emphasising the resurrection life that those of us who follow Jesus are living now. And what God through Paul says to us in Colossians 3 is that since you have a new resurrection life, you need to have a new mindset. So this is then the second uh, point of the section, raised life, raised mindset. And I think God makes it uh, pretty clear in verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Because we have been raised to new life, we're to seek the things of Christ's kingdom. We're to set our minds on the things of his kingdom. To use the words of verse 1, We're to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now you might recognise that 
uh, those words are a reference to the Psalms again, to Psalm 110. The Lord God's promise to our Lord Jesus that the Lord God will rule through our Lord Jesus while Jesus sits at his right hand until the kingdom is established. So when Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 tells us to seek the things associated with Christ and uh, uh, where God rules through him, I understand it to be saying that we ought to be seeking the things of Christ's rule, the things of Christ's kingdom. And the instruction to seek and to set our minds on the things of Christ's kingdom is really calling us to a a disciplined and determined and ongoing effort. You know, back home we might say of somebody that uh, once she sets her mind to something, there's no stopping her. And what we're doing is acknowledging how uh, determined this person is in the way she seeks to get something done. Once she sets her mind to it, She applies all of her energy and discipline and focus and determination to get it done. And God's calling us to the same sort of determination and focus here. Sometimes I think in the Christian life, you know, we know that we're going to get to heaven. We know that whatever changes have to happen to me to make me suitable to heaven are going to be finished and completed at that time, everything's it's going to be all good. And so, you know, I can just sort of cruise along a bit now, don't I? I don't need to worry too much about stuff because God's going to take care of it in the end. But I think here God's saying, well, no, that's not really the attitude I want to see. I want some determination from you to start living that way now. I want you to set your minds on the things that are above. And so in the here and now, we're to live the resurrection life with its concern for the things of the resurrection age and God's kingdom. We need to be determined and focused because while we are living a resurrection life, we are living it here on earth. And there are many things that will distract us and even tempt us away from the concerns of God's kingdom. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4 and his warning that for some people, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the new life of the kingdom out of them. Or Paul's acknowledgement in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that the the married or family person has uh, many more worldly things to be anxious about. So if in the here and now we're to live the resurrection life with its concerns for the things of Christ's kingdom, we will need to be focused and disciplined and determined to do it. For to live the resurrection life means raised life, raised mindset. 
But sometimes when we are called to set our minds on something new or different, it can be difficult if we don't quite know what it is. Uh, For example, uh, I do a lot of swimming and I'm working on a a new uh, swimming stroke at the moment. But I don't quite get what the, the right stroke should be. So when I'm swimming and I'm trying to set my mind on doing the new stroke, I struggle because I'm just not quite sure what it is. Well, so that we don't have the same problem setting our mind on the things of Christ's kingdom, God through Paul gives us here a specific thing, list of things to do and not to do. And so this brings us to the last point from the section, that a new mindset means a new lifestyle. New mindset, new lifestyle. Some people say that uh, Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. You know, I think they mean that you know Christians run around thinking about heaven and all this sort of stuff and they're practically useless for anything you might need to get done in the here and now. A little unfair in, in some cases, I suppose. But... Uh, the next part of Colossians tells us that uh, Christians, that to be heavenly minded is to be very practical. Because it is to put to death all sorts of vices, you know, bad things associated with the way you used to live, and put on all sorts of virtues or good behaviours that are associated with God's kingdom. Do you see verse 5 begins? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly. And on it goes to list a whole lot of stuff. And verse 12 begins, Put on, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And it goes on to list a whole lot of stuff as well. It would be as though you were a Liverpool fan. You know, these days you rarely win. You have few, if you have few, if any, genuine star players. Your, your fellow supporters are often embarrassing, and you are you are as good as dead in your support of Liverpool. But someone offers to you a new life as a supporter of a decent football club. One that wins games. One that attracts the star players. One where you get to live it up at victory celebrations. One where the other fans are cool and desirable and everything else you want people to think you are. A soccer club like... But can you go to the Arsenal games wearing these awful clothes from before you were made truly alive? Of course not. So you must put them off. Put them off so fully and finally that you that you put them to death. 
and you put on the glorious new clothes. The glorious, the glorious body-hugging, physique-enhancing new clothes of the soccer fans who truly live. But of course, we're not talking about football and football club jumpers. But the life of those who follow Jesus and its thoughts and its behaviours. So first, let's have a look at the vices of the old self that God is calling us to to put off, put to death. As verse 5 says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And it goes on to say, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. It seems that pretty much all of that uh, part of the list is related to any illegitimate sexual activity, sexual intercourse. God's intention that's made clear in the Bible is that sex is for a man and a woman who are married to each other. To God's way of thinking, illegitimate sexual activity is any sexual activity outside that. Now I know that's really at odds with the world in which we live, but nevertheless, it's the way God thinks. Illegitimate sexual activity is anything outside of a heterosexual marriage. It prohibits sexual activity for a single person who's not yet married or is single because they are separated or divorced or is single because they've been widowed. It prohibits same-sex sexual activity, whether it's between two men or two women. And while it is hard to know the exact differences meant by the terms here, sexual immorality, impurity, passion and evil desire, it is safe to say that it means not only the sexual activity that we do, you know, with our bodies, outside our bodies, but also the sexual activity that goes on, I guess, in our thought life. Stuff that would include, for example, internet porn. Now, I realise, as God does, that no longer doing these things can be very difficult And I would think it's all the more so for people who might have been sexually active in the past. Or perhaps have become addicted to internet porn. And indeed, to no longer do those things is seen to be so difficult that non-Christians, I might mention this stuff to to, to, just, just laugh at the suggestion that a single person or a same-sex attracted person should or even could be celibate. 
And yet God, who made us, who gave us these very passions that we find so strong, this same God is calling his people to put the illegitimate use of those passions to death. Put to death, therefore, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness. That last uh, vice on the list, covetousness, could be talking about desiring to have someone or something that belongs to someone else. And so it serves as a bit of a transition to the second list of non-sexual vices in verses 8 and 9. Now God, through Paul, says you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new. Verse 11, if you look at that, um, makes it clear that included among the vices we must put to death is any kind of discriminatory behaviour, whether it be in relation to race or heritage or gender or social standing or anything else. Here there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, I'm not going to sort of work through that list and explain each item on it because I think they're uh, self-explanatory. I'm happy to take questions about them um, later if you have them. Um, One thing we can say is that this list is a little bit different to other New Testament lists of things where to put off. And I guess that tells us that no one list in the New Testament is a complete list. No doubt these are the particular things that Paul knew the Christians at Colossae needed to avoid. And while perhaps not all of them apply to us, apply to you, apply to me, no doubt some of them do. I'm yet to meet a person who doesn't sometimes struggle with slander or the occasional obscenity or lie or outburst of anger. And I have never met a man who doesn't struggle with sexual sin in his thought life, at least. But nevertheless, this was the list of particular sins that the Colossians were to put to death. So I wonder, if Paul was to write you a list, wouldn't it be horrifying if he published a letter like this? But no, no. I wonder, if if, if Paul was to write you a list, would it be different to this one? What are the things that that would need to be added to the list to describe the sins that you're yet to put to death or that I'm yet to put to death? You see, whatever's on our list, the urging here is the same. If you are to truly set your minds on the things of Christ's kingdom, you must leave these things behind 
because they have no place in God's kingdom. Are these sins harder for some of us to avoid than they are for others? Yes. Sexual temptation is harder for some people than for others. It may well be greater for the single than the married. There are some of us who get angry more quickly and more violently than others. There are some of us who have a personality, a personality that can just tend to be a bit more malicious than other people. Some of us tend to be more gossipy than other people. Yet God sets the same standard for us all. I'll never forget one of my uh, more college lecturers saying that uh, he had a twin brother and uh, his twin brother found it difficult because he had a really short fuse and a really violent temper. And he sort of felt that it was a bit unfair that God expected uh, both of them to attain the same standard of you know, not being angry. That's just life, isn't it? Some things are harder for some than others. And no doubt in other areas, the boot would have been on the other foot. Does God have any idea how hard it is for us to turn away from some of these things? Well, yes, he does. Because the letter to the Hebrews assures us that Jesus was made perfect through suffering and that in his suffering... He was experiencing testing and tempting as we are, yet he was without sin. And that this experience enables him to sympathise with us in our weakness and is in part the basis for our confidence that we will receive mercy from him and grace to help in time of need. You know, I think if Jesus knew nothing about what we were talking about and we came and said to him, I'm, I'm struggling with drunkenness or internet porn, he'd say, what's your problem? Just deal with it. But instead, I think Jesus you know, has some understanding of, if not those difficulties, ones like them. And so we can expect a merciful, helpful, gracious response from him. Is there forgiveness for the person who genuinely seeks to put these things to death but lapses from time to time? Absolutely. Because as God says to us in his grace, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he, by his death, turns God's wrath and punishment away from us. But if those are the behaviours that we, as risen followers of Christ, with our raised life, raised mindset and new lifestyle must put to death, what then are the other behaviours the virtues that we must embrace and put on. Well, listen to verses 13 or 12 to 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now again, I think, for the most part, self-explanatory. If you want to talk about any of those, please grab me later. But again, I think we've got to say that no doubt some of these virtues can be as hard to put on as some of the vices are to put off. No doubt also, our gracious God, who has the power to raise the dead, stands in our corner, ready to help us in time of need as we struggle to apply these virtues in the way we live. So as we you know, come to a conclusion, thinking about Colossians chapter 3, we can say that as much as it is true that the fullness of the glory of the kingdom of the risen Christ awaits us at the resurrection of the dead, it is true to say that we have been raised already to new life. A new life requires a new mindset and a new mindset, a new lifestyle. To finish, let me tell you about a guy called Joseph Samuels. On the 26th of September in 1803, Joseph Samuels was to be hanged in Sydney Cove. They walked him to the gallows, slipped a noose around his neck, covered his head, pulled open the hatch in the floor of the gallows, the weight of his falling body jerked the rope taut and the rope broke. When they'd recovered from the shock of it, they lifted him to his feet, walked him back up the gallows to do it again. They slipped the noose around his neck, they covered his head, they pulled open the hatch in the floor of the gallows, the weight of his falling body jerked the rope taut and the rope broke took them a little longer to recover from the shock this time, but when they had, they lifted him to his feet, walked him back up to the gallows to do it again. They slipped the noose around his neck, covered his head, pulled open the hatch in the floor of the gallows, the weight of his falling body jerked the rope taut, and the rope broke. The law of the day required that three unsuccessful attempts to hang someone resulted in their immediate pardon. Now, how on earth you would think that you need to make up that law 
uh, you know, lawyers think of everything, don't they? Or maybe they have experience with incompetent hang persons. I don't know, but the law required that three unsuccessful attempts to hang someone resulted in their immediate pardon. So Joseph Samuels walked away a free man. And the judge who released him said at the time, may the grateful remembrance of these events direct his future course. Just over two years later, Joseph Samuels was one of a number of men caught stealing a boat. It seems that although mercy had given him a new life, he had not set his mind on a new lifestyle. May it not be so for us. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.